Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Good morning again. Uh, in this season of Easter, we are exploring the significance uh, of Jesus' resurrection, all that that means for our lives. And last week we saw that Jesus said in John chapter 10 that that he came that we might have life and and have it to the full. And we talked about how he doesn't just want us to exist, that he wants us to know life. And today we're looking at John chapter 11 and we're looking at a moment in this famous story of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, So let me give just a a little backstory, then we'll kind of jump in uh, together. So in the beginning of this chapter, John chapter 11, thank you, my friend, uh, we read of three siblings, Mary, uh, Martha, and and Lazarus, and and Lazarus, we are told, becomes very ill, and so his sisters send a message to Jesus asking him to come. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick, and this is one way we see, one of the many ways we see that Jesus had a very close relationship with these siblings, that he, that he loved them. And so in response to this message, Jesus goes to see Lazarus, but as you can imagine, it takes him some time to get there. And so by the time he arrives, it turns out that Lazarus is dead. And so when he arrives, everyone is mourning, everyone is grieving, And that's where we are when we pick up this story in in the section we just read. And let me read to you again from verses 20 and 21. It says, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, or as some translations put it, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now let me ask you, when was the last time you found yourself saying, if only, you know, if, if only, you know, if only I had studied harder, maybe I wouldn't have failed that exam. Or, you know, if only I had gotten that job, or if only I had a different job, or if only I was married, or if only I wasn't married, or whatever, whatever the thing is, you know, you know, if only my, my kids would come back to faith or if only I, I, I didn't make that bad decision like choosing to root for the Padres or the San Francisco Giants or, you know, fill in the blank. But, but in all seriousness, if, if you, you know, have you ever found yourself saying, if only? Well, that sense of longing for, for things to be different is really what's wrapped up in, in, in Martha's statement, if only you had been here. You see, she knows that if Jesus had been there, that he could have healed her brother, Lazarus. And so perhaps he would still be there with them. But by the time Jesus arrives, we are told in 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 verse 17 that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And, And so for Martha, this looks just like a hopeless situation. And and perhaps some of you here today, as you look at your life, it just feels like a hopeless situation. Or maybe as you look out at the world, it just feels like a hopeless situation. Well, we are going to see today that there is always cause for hope because of who Jesus is and what he came to do. 
And finally, we'll talk about how we can experience that, okay? So, so the first question really is, who is Jesus and how does that fill us with hope in the midst of a hopeless world? Well, in response to Martha's statement, Jesus makes just one of the most profound statements and declarations in all of scripture, and, and this is where we'll focus. So in, in verse 25 and 26, in response to Martha, Jesus says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, Jesus says, will never die. So what does that tell us about who Jesus is? I think there are really two things that are wrapped up in this. And first notice these two words, simple words, deceptively simple, I am. I am. Easy to skip over those words, but they're actually pregnant with meaning. So think back to the Old Testament. Do you remember when God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush? And maybe if you didn't read the story, but maybe you saw the movie. Uh, Maybe Charlton Heston or maybe the new one. Uh, But you may recall that Moses asked God, after God gives Moses this commission, go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And so in response, uh, naturally, Moses says, "Uh, uh, uh, what should I say your name is? You know, who who should I tell them sent me? And, And the Lord says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. That's all you need to know right now. So as you can imagine, Moses is probably wondering, I am what? I, I am who? Fill in the blank. So over time, God actually starts filling in those blanks. And, and uh, thousands of years later, the blanks really get filled in when Jesus comes. And they're actually in John's gospel. There's seven what are called I am sayings of Jesus. So uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Of course, that's where we get the name of our church. And and here in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So seven times Jesus fills in these blanks. And what you need to know is that in the Bible, seven is the number of completeness. Because on the seventh day, God rested from all his labors. And so since then, this has been seen as the number of completeness. And so what Jesus is saying here is saying, I complete the picture of who God is. I am all of these things. And so what that tells us very clearly is that Jesus, he's not just a good moral teacher. He is not just a prophet. He's not just an especially enlightened human being, but rather that he is God in the flesh. And what that means practically is that therefore, there is no situation that is so hopeless that he cannot turn around because of who he is. Amen. Amen. And so that's the first thing we see about who Jesus is, but it actually gets even more clear in this next part because he doesn't just say, I am. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what this means. This means that resurrection is not just something that Jesus brings. It's who he is. That life is not just something he offers, but it's actually right in his very essence of who he is. And so he's trying to help Martha see, you know, I don't just have access to divine power to bring healing and resurrection. He's saying, I am that power, that I am actually the one who gives life to everything. And you see, you know, she's despondent, she's hopeless. And so to really shatter that hopelessness, he's leading her into a deeper understanding of who he is. He says, I am the resurrection 
and the life. This is who I am. And the implication is take heart. This, this is who I am. And I'm here now. So think of what's possible. So this is who Jesus is. But of course, this very naturally leads us to ask, so what does he come to do? And here's, here's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring life. I don't know why you think Jesus came, but that, that's, that's why he came. He came to bring life. When I was a kid growing up, I thought maybe Jesus came to kind of just give a bunch of rules, and so I would feel really kind of constricted and restrained. But actually, no, he came to bring life. And if you read John's gospel, which is sort of like this theological biography about the life of Jesus, you'll see each chapter just sort of unfolds even more clearly this revelation that this is who John, uh, that Jesus is, rather. And I want to read to you a quote from Bruce Milne, who's commenting on uh, this passage, and he kind of sums, sums up the point like this. He says, Jesus has already been revealed, and he's talking about the gospel of John, He's saying Jesus has already been revealed as the giver of life in in a number of ways. Materially, he gives life to water, making it wine. Spiritually, he offers the new spiritual life of the kingdom of God to Nicodemus in the life which springs up within a person, satisfying all thirst to the Samaritan woman. Physically, he imparts life to a dying boy, a long-standing physical paralytic, and a man born blind. He is the good shepherd who's come to give life and life to the full. The life he brings is primarily eternal life, the life of the long-awaited kingdom of God. So in other words, the point here is not that Jesus is promising you a new Range Rover uh, or something like that. It's actually, the promise is actually way better than that. Milne goes on to say that Jesus now fills out these claims to their fullest proportion. The life he gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection and hear this, the very life of the deathless God himself. I love that. It's powerful. So Jesus is life and he comes to bring life. But let's talk for a minute about why he needed to come in, in the first place. And, and I want to take a step back just for a minute and just get a little theological. So, so, so st- stick with me here. So if Jesus came to bring life, what does that tell us about sort of the problem he's coming to address? What does that, what does that tell us about the human condition? And I think this is important to talk about because I, I, I think we often get confused about this. And so here's how I think we often think about the problem of the human condition. I think we often think about it like this. You know, I, I struggle with sin, and so, you know, that makes me bad, and so I need God to make me good. But you see, the, the, the issue isn't that immorality has kind of gripped us at the heart of who we are as humanity, and that we just need sort of a moral kind of trade-out. God's diagnosis, you need to hear this, of the human condition is actually far more deep and really stark and sobering than that. Uh, that really, uh, that if all sin did was make us bad or, or make us unclean or, or, or make us immoral, and they would actually think about this, there would be no need for resurrection. And as my friend Alan Scott has, has said, that religion can clean up corpses, but only resurrection can raise the dead. Such a powerful point. You see, sin is not just a morality issue. Think about this. It is a life issue. And, 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 and what God wants for you, what he wants for me is actually life. But what you see, here's what sin is. It's not just violating some arbitrary rule. It's actually pushing God away. But when we push God away, we are severing a connection with the source of life itself. And, and, and so, so that's, that's why Jesus came. And, and some of us, here's what's tricky. Some of us, we, we think we're alive. But it's kind of like your Christmas tree. For a little while, like... 
it, look, it looks all right for a little while. But give it a little time. And it just sort of withers, and it's like, well, what's going on with this thing? You know, and, and that's kind of what it's like because it's been it's been severed from the source of its life. Well, the same thing with the human condition. We've been severed from the source of our life, which is actually Jesus Christ. And so He comes to bring life. He comes to bring life, and He is the resurrection and the life. And what that means, just kind of to unpack the kind of the practical implications, is, is that everywhere He is life comes. And wherever he goes, resurrection happens. And never where he is, is subject to hope. Uh, and, and by the way, that, that's why it was a disaster to have him at a funeral uh, back in the day. Because <laughs> people would just get up and they would, they would walk away. Um, why? Well, because he's the resurrection and the life. Now, uh, we're not going to finish this story, but just as the story continues in John chapter 11, Jesus goes actually to the tomb of Lazarus and, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that literally happened, but this is also for us sort of an acted parable of the life-giving power of God that he wants to offer and give to us. And as I said last week, Jesus didn't just die on the cross and and, and rise from the just so we could get a new religion or a new belief system. He he died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that we could know life. That is why Jesus came. And I was sitting this, with this passage this past week, and I had um, just a really profound thought. And it's this, that we all die, but we don't all live. We all die, but we don't all live. You see, Jesus wants you to know life, and that is why he came. Now, briefly, I just want to take this a, a bit deeper because the life that Jesus brings is actually has kind of two dimensions to it, a, a present dimension, a present reality, and a future dimension or a future reality. And so first, let's talk for just a minute about this present dimension. Again, in verse 25, Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live. No, not just exist, will live. Jesus wants you to live. He has a life for you. That is his promise. And he says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, verse 26. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In other words, this is for now. Whoever lives by believing me. In other words, this is a present reality. Whoever lives now will know this kind of life. That is the promise. We can know this life even now. And as, as Jesus kind of is in this dialogue with Martha, it's clear that she has some sort of belief and, you know, some sort of resurrection life kind of at the distant edges of history. But Jesus is inviting her in this interaction to reimagine this hope in a radical way because he's saying that the resin li- resurrection life he brings is not confined to the distant future, but it is for here and now. And it is in him who is the resurrection and the life. And so what that means is that, just to boil this down, the resurrection isn't just a doctrine. Uh, it isn't just a, a future fact, but it is actually a person. And in this scene, he's standing in front of Martha and he's inviting her in to this sort of life here and now because it is a present reality. And it is for us too. That's the invitation. So, so there's this present dimension, but there's also this, this, this future dimension. And, and I find we can also t- tend to can I just emphasize one or the other, but this is a both and, okay? It's present reality and a future reality. So again, verse 25, the one who believes in me, Jesus says, will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, one of the things this verse reminds us of is something we, we don't like to think about much. It doesn't get many likes on Facebook, 
namely the reality that one day we will die. Um, a scholar by the name of Ernest Becker wrote a book in the 1970s, famous book called The Denial of Death. Very influential, even outside of academic circles. For example, it shows up in a Woody Allen film uh, at one point. But in this book, Becker argues that the bulk of human civilization is actually an attempt to hide from ourselves the reality of our own mortality. And, and I think he's actually just spot on. And I read something recently by Russell Brand, who's kind of this comedian and actor and kind of a crazy guy, but he's, he's describing this, this re- reality, actually. He does a good job of, of talking about how we have this, uh, these various attempts to distract ourselves from our mortality. And so he says, we fill our days with, quote, temporary fixes, a coffee here, an eBay purchase there, a half-hearted wank or a flirt, some glinting twitch of pleasure, like a silvery stitch on a cadaver to tide you over. And he goes on, so no one's going to blame you if you perch on a carousel of destructive relationships and unfulfilling work, whirling round, never still, never truly looking within, never really going home. It's a veiled reference to God at the end there. But this is a a reality we don't like to think about and often uh, we we try to avoid, but when we do have those few moments when we do think about this, the, the, the question that naturally arises is, well, what happens? Like, what happens when you, jo- when you die? I, I came across a story recently of a, of a woman who was moving her business to a new location. She throws a big celebration to thank her old customers, and, and she orders a huge bouquet of flowers. But the florist gets her order mixed up with a funeral order. And so she ends up with a huge flower arrangement that says, we are so sorry for your loss. And of course, she's not pleased with this, so she complains to the florist, and he says, you think you have problems? I have to talk to a family that had a funeral with huge flowers that said, good luck in your new location. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. That's kind of the big question, right? Is there going to be a new location? And if so, will I be prepared for it? Will I be prepared for it? It's one of the ultimate questions of life. And so Jesus replies this. He says, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, he says, will never die. Now, now, now what does that mean? Does that mean we're not going to face physical death? No, of course not. We all know brothers and sisters who've passed away. But what Jesus is saying is that because he is the source of all life, now think about this, He's the source of all life. He's the resurrection and the life. So that means if you're connected to him, if you have this vital connection to him, then that means that the end of your body is not the end of you. It is not the end of your story. The apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, if you you have your trust in Jesus Christ, to be absent from the body is actually to be present with the Lord. You see, physical death, and what that is, is the separation of the soul from the body. That is not total death. Because your soul is the bearer of your your personal identity. And so if your soul, if your life is caught up in the life of Jesus Christ, you will live with him for eternity. I have to share a story on this. Dallas Willard, who's a a famous Christian leader, um, wrote many books. He was also a professor of philosophy at USC, very respected in the secular philosophical world. My wife actually had the opportunity to study with him at USC. I got to spend some time with him. Just an amazing man. When he passed away, this was his experience. A guy named Gary Mays, who was a professor at Azusa Pacific, was with him when, when he passed. And, and he shares that in his final moments 
uh, Dallas described to him how it's like the veil between this life and the next was just lifted. And he saw the, like this immense, beautiful hallway. And what the Bible describes is the great cloud of witnesses came to greet him. And his last words were, thank you. And he laid his head down. Just such a beautiful picture of this life that continues. Actually, if your trust is in Jesus, if you're connected to him, that death is not the end of your story, it's just the continuation of your journey. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. The one who believes in me will live, Jesus says, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Don't you want that to look forward to? And actually, the future hope that we have in Christ is actually it's even better than what we've been talking about so far because our ultimate hope is not just a disembodied existence in God's presence. That is amazing, and I take that for eternity, but it gets even better than that because the hope of this passage, actually what Jesus is pointing to is that one day we will share in his resurrection, that we will experience bodily resurrection. We will enjoy the new heavens and a new earth where God will transform everything, all our heartache, all our pain. He'll wipe every tear away from our eyes, the Bible says, and we will get to experience Jesus' resurrection. It's amazing, it's amazing. Now, I know that for some that this is maybe hard to embrace. In one sense, they might think this looks attractive, but on the other hand, some people reject this because they fear that this is like just uh, just an example of, of wishful thinking, sort of, of of wish fulfillment. So if, I don't know if you ever read uh, anyone like uh, Freud, Sigmund Freud or, or, or Karl Marx, but this is kind of their complaint against religion and, and Christianity. This is kind of just, you know, wishful thinking, you know? couple of things on this. First, I would point out that, um, that, that an assertion is not the same as an argument. That's really helpful to get clear on. And so just because someone says something doesn't mean it's just, the question is always, well, what reasons do I have for thinking this, right? So that's just kind of a little, that's just a little bonus right there. Uh, <laughs> but secondly, I would point out that wishful thinking actually cuts both ways. So, so think about this. A, a lot of people do not want there to be a God for whom one day I will have to give an account for my life, right? Actually, a lot of people do not want that. Uh, when I was in grad school, I studied a philosopher, a famous secular philosopher named Thomas Nagel, and he says this, and this is very candid. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It is just as irrational to be influenced by one's beliefs, by the hope that God does not exist, as by the hope that God does exist. In other words, he's confessing that he's got wishful thinking just going in the opposite direction, right? And he's not alone, actually. I mean, I could, I could do examples all day, but think of just, here's a famous one, John Lennon's famous song, Imagine. Imagine no heaven above us. Above us only sky. No, no hell below us, you know? So this, he, that was his wish. That was his wish. That was he wanted to be true, and, and, and honestly, some people hope there is no God because, again, if there is, that could be kind of an inconvenient truth, right? That might interfere with my life. And it can be, I mean, let's be honest, it can be kind of unnerving to think about standing in the presence on that day before a holy God. And so for those reasons, sometimes people don't want that to be true. But here, here's what I want you to hear because sometimes what's wrapped up in that is I think this, this kind of skewed picture of who God is. The God of the Bible is not like this God who's just waiting to like to smack you, just waiting for you to like step out of line, just, you know. That is not the God of the Bible. That he, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus Christ. 
Paul said he is the image of the invisible God, and he is the one who gave everything. He gave up everything to come and to be with us. He suffered, he died, he conquered death on our behalf that we might know life. That is who God is. And today he is offering us life. And the question this day and and every day really is, will, will we receive it? Will we receive it? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. And then he went on to conquer death itself. And that's what we're celebrating in this season of Easter. And Jesus' empty tomb is, is, is really a testimony. It's not just, again, kind of an abstract doctrine. It's actually a, a testimony that death and disease and suffering and sickness does not have the last word. Amen? And, and Jesus, you have to know, he didn't just sort of kind of somehow like pull some Houdini move and kind of escape the grave. He conquered the grave. And because of that, we can have so much confidence, so much hope that, that, that death, that suffering, all that stuff, that is, not, that is not the last word. Jesus' life is the last word. So briefly, how do we experience this? Jesus said, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And so again, the promise here is life, the source is Jesus, the way in, the way to receive this, to experience this is in Jesus' words, to believe. Now I want to talk about this for just a second because I think sometimes the way we use that word is different the way Jesus means it. Sometimes we think believe, that means I assent to some doctrines about Jesus. Now that's, that, 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 that's part of it, but really what's right, really at bottom. So because think of in, in James, uh, the apostle James in his letter, he, he points out that even even demons believe all the right things about Jesus because they know who he is. They know he's the son of God. They, they know who he is. But So that tells us very clearly that simply believing the right things about Jesus isn't enough. We need something deeper. And what that is is trust, is confidence. That Jesus is saying, hey, if you put your trust in me, if you put your hope in me, if you put your confidence in me, that is how you get connected to this source of life. That is the invitation. Now, as I land this plan, I just want to invite the band to uh, come back up. So... Again, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus goes on to ask Martha this this question. He always, he loves to ask questions. And he says to Martha, he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And I think he might want to ask that to some of us. Do, Do you believe this? I want to close today with reading with uh, something that N.T. Wright uh, wrote, and so N.T. Wright, if you don't know him, he's a, just a wonderful biblical scholar and, and pastor and bishop, but he's commenting on, on this passage, and this just kind of really impacted me, so I wanted to share this with you in closing. It's, it's sort of like a devotional, so you might want to just close your eyes for a moment as I read this. And in, in the beginning of the sermon, you know, I asked, you know, when was the last time you said, if only? And Wright ties that question to this part of the story like this. And he's observing that Jesus is now challenging Martha, urging her to exchange her if only for an if Jesus. That's the invitation today, to exchange that if only for an if Jesus. And Wright says, if Jesus is who she is coming to believe he is, if Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised by the prophets, the one who is to come into the world, if he is God's own son, the one in whom the living God is strangely and newly present, if he is resurrection person, life come to life. Now the story breaks off at this point, keeping us in suspense while Martha goes to get her sister. But this suspense, John 
is after all, master storyteller, is designed not least to give a space to think the same questions through for ourselves. And then Wright goes on to say, if you have an if only in your heart and mind right now, put yourself in Martha's shoes. Run off to meet Jesus. Tell him the problem. Ask him why he didn't come sooner, why he allowed that awful thing to happen. And then be prepared for a surprising response. And Wright goes on to say, I can't predict what that response will be for the very good reason that it is always, always a surprise. But I do know, he says, the shape that it will take. Jesus will meet your problem with some new part of God's future that can and will burst into your present time, into the mess and grief with good news, with hope, with new possibilities. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. We praise you. And I pray that your life would just go bursting forth in our lives today. I pray for fresh hope, renewed vision, God, of who you are, and just freedom to follow where you lead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a moment just to sit with the Lord. You might just want to think and just reflect, God, what are you saying to me today? We'll take just a moment in silent prayer, then we'll continue in worship. Let's take a moment together.